Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. I'm Jennifer, and I live by the Bible because in the book of John, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so I believe that, that the Bible is the actual Word of God. So anytime that I have a dilemma or a question, something I'm struggling with, all I need to do is see what the Bible says about this situation, and I can know that it's a rock, it's a standard that never changes. And that's so much more reliable than just um, getting people's opinions and things that might shift over time. In Psalm 119, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So whenever we feel lost, and I know I have, we can just turn to the Word of God and He will give us knowledge, wisdom, and direction for our lives. You made it to church. Good morning, everybody. You doing all right today? Anybody excited to be at church this morning? Again, happy Mother's Day to all our moms. We love you. We're in a teaching series, week three, of a series called Convictions, talking about the deeply rooted beliefs that really embody the faith of Jesus, the Christian faith. And so we've looked at the Apostles' Creed really as a foundation for those beliefs, an outline of those beliefs. I want to read it again today. It says, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. And so as we've looked at this the last two weeks now, we, we started with this idea of belief. What does it mean to be a believer? And are you a believer? Are you someone who truly believes. And then the week after that, last week, we looked at this idea of God, the Father Almighty, right? If you remember Sean's message last week, I was blessed by Sean's message. Was anybody else encouraged by Sean Haggerty's message last week? Father Almighty. So what does it mean to be God as Father and to understand God as Almighty? And so this, this incredible collision of realities. Today, we look at God the Son. And I want to look at Colossians chapter 1 to outline a picture that the Bible gives us of God the Son, starting in verse 15 of Colossians 1, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Colossae. He says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Look at it with me. The firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and to have and to reconcile to himself, excuse me, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. And once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, 
without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. I want to speak today under the heading, The Great Bridge, The Great Bridge. Would you pray with me? Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this day, for the opportunity to set our attention on your word and on your truth. I know we all come in with different circumstances, different issues, different challenges and trials. I pray that you would miraculously, supernaturally speak to each of us today in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen, amen. I just want to confess something to you uh, that uh, if you don't mind, just don't tell anyone, all right? I um, I don't know how to get to Nut Plains Park, and that may not mean much to you, but uh, but my kids, all three of my boys play sports, and and uh, it seems that I'm constantly ending up at Nut Plains Park on the shoreline in Connecticut. And, uh, and you know, it's not very far from my house, probably 10 minutes from my house. But every time I go, I put it in my GPS. And now it's been years that I've been going to Nut Plains Park. And it's not that many turns. There's like four. I know you're thinking less of me now. But, but I don't know how to get there. The other day, I was trying to get there. And, and, uh, and I realized I'm not sure where to turn. And I had to put it in my phone just to figure out, you know, in the GPS, my phone, just to figure out how to get from my house to Nut Plains Park, of which I have been dozens of dozens of dozens of dozens of dozens of times. I don't know if you've seen this propensity in your own life that we have access to so much information on our phones, on our computers, that we tend to not learn certain things for the sake of, you know, convenience, right? I just don't feel like learning it. And, and that on, in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but it does seem that as technology grows more and more and more active in our lives, that our knowledge and what we internalize, internalize actually is getting less and less. Let me just give you some examples. A recent study found that one out of three Americans don't know who delivered the Gettysburg Address. All right. And so um, if you're like the Gettysburg who? Yeah, it was Lincoln. All right. Abraham Lincoln. 67% of Americans don't know who wrote letter from a Birmingham jail. And 70% of Americans couldn't tell you what the Constitution actually is. And some of you are like, mm, I don't know any of those three. But, but if I need them, it's not a big deal because I'll just Google it. Go ahead and look at the person next to you and tell them Google it. Google it. Some of you are Googling it right now. Letters from, oh, it's Martin Luther. Okay, Junior. All right, my bad. So, so you didn't know, right? But, you know, it's birthdays. We don't remember birthdays anymore. Why would I remember your birthday? I just put it in my phone. It'll ding on your birthday. And I'll just remind, I'll just, you know, shoot you a text or anniversaries or, or important facts. Certainly not creeds. There are not too many people memorizing creeds or even scriptures anymore because I can just get it right away. But I wonder if all of this lack of deep internalization is actually changing us. Nicholas Carr, in his best-selling book, The Shallows, explores the long-term implications of a world that's become so dependent upon technology. And he shows how strengthening your memory is actually connected to your intelligence and your convictions. So listen to what he says. He says, with each expansion of our memory comes an enlargement of our intelligence. Go ahead and turn to the person next to you and say, I think you're in trouble. With each expansion of our memory... Have you been experiencing it? Comes an enlargement of our intelligence. The web provides a convenient and compelling supplement to personal memory. But when you start living or using the web as a substitute for personal memory by bypassing the inner processes of consolidation, we risk emptying our minds of their riches. He goes on to say what we're experiencing is, in a metaphorical sense, a reversal of the early trajectory of civilization. We are evolving from being cultivators of personal knowledge because there was a day where we were cultivating knowledge on our own, right? Two, being hunters and gatherers in an electronic data forest. And so we're constantly scrolling, constantly grazing, constantly not learning, but just Googling it, right? 
Just find it when you need it and forget it as soon as you don't need it anymore. And so the problem with this is that oftentimes we don't go deep in our convictions. So imagine your convictions like a bridge. You can put my bridge picture up, okay? So you're all familiar with the idea of a bridge, right? A bridge at the top. Where's my bridge picture at? Bridge. Bridge, there it is. So at the top of the bridge, right, you've got, you know, the stuff your car drives on or you walk across. You got that. That's the superstructure. Everybody understands that. But then underneath the bridge, there are these big piers, okay, these big pillars that really hold the bridge up. But then it's got to go even deeper than that. Those piers have to be driven down in what are called piles deep into the earth in order to hold the weight that the bridge needs to hold. And so for many of us, whether we realize it or not, we've been building bridges in our lives, but our bridges lack that level of depth. And this is really one of the key secrets of Christianity. You can put my bridge picture away. The key secret of Christianity is that in order for our faith to really work, it's got to go deep. In order for our faith to really work, it's got to get into the foundation of who we are. Most importantly, your understanding of who God is needs to go down deep into who you are. And that's why the Apostle Creed, by the way, begins with a revelation of God. It's taking the truth of God outlined in the Bible and putting it in a helpful reminder, right? So I believe in God the Father Almighty, but as soon as you start to understand God as Father, which is what we looked at last week, God is Father and he's almighty, this is amazing, this is incredible, then the, the Creed introduces God the Son, God the Son. And this is the first pillar in our understanding of God. You guys can come out and bring me my first pillar if you don't mind. And it is that God is not quite what you thought he was not quite who you thought he was. Can you give these guys a hand? They gave me like the two strongest guys to help me carry some pillars. Thanks, guys. He's not quite who you thought he was. What does that mean? Well, an understanding of God takes time to develop as you learn the truth of what's been revealed about him because God is not exactly as simple as we sometimes think. So you say, well, God is Father. Yes, he is, but God is also son. Well, how does that work? Well, God is spirit. Well, that, does that mean he's not son? And, 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 and is that, wait, I, I'm not entirely sure what all that means. You remember the 10 commandments, right? Remember Charlton Heston, or maybe if that's too old, you remember the Prince of Egypt, the cartoon, or whatever it might be, where, you know, uh, Exodus chapter 20, where the 10 commandments are introduced to the world through Moses by God, and he begins to tell us of these commandments. And the first commandment, if you're familiar with the 10 commandments, is that you'll have no other gods before me, right? And so, okay, we understand that. But then the second commandment says, and you will make no image of God out of anything in this world and bow down and worship it. And so for modern minds, we go, okay, no other God before me, make no image, Fine, that's like we can combine those. So let's just make it the nine commandments. That'll be easy to remember because they're kind of the same thing, you know, same thing. But they're not the same thing. The first commandment speaks of supremacy, that God must be first in all all things. But the second commandment speaks of our natural inclination to imagine God on our terms. That there's something inside of you that has an image of God, an idea of God. And we have a tendency to make God who we want him to be that we have a tendency to build instinctively around an image. And so maybe you're like, well, I like to think of God as a grandpa. Okay, well, I like to think of God as a great tree. Oh, I like to think of God as a powerful king. Well, I like to think of God as the clockmaker who's making all the pieces work together. The second commandment is basically telling us that God reserves the right to define himself, that we can't create an image of God and worship it. 
But the goal of Christianity is to reframe our image of God from our assumptions to what we believe is his self-revelation. Because when we imagine God in our minds, he's never all that he actually is. And so your mind needs to be trained in a truth that is beyond what comes instinctively, okay? Now think of this, because this isn't just true of God. It's in true of every instinct you have. Instincts are great. They can be helpful. They can be a benefit. But instincts alone will get you in a whole lot of trouble, right? Just think about your instinct towards food, for example, right? If you followed every instinct you had towards food, how would your diet go, right? It, for me, I could tell you right now, if I followed every instinct, it would be cookies for breakfast, then it'd be ice cream for lunch, then it'd be, then it'd be you know, that's how I would eat because those are the things I enjoy. But what I find is that those things, though in moderation can be okay, in excess will kill me, literally kill me, right? And so if you want health, you have to change what's instinctual and you have to submit it to something that's greater, right? So it is with your sexual impulses. Let's just get real, we'll keep it PG. But your sexual impulses, right, if followed to their full, if you just did everything you felt or desired, well, your marriage would not be so good. In fact, every relationship in your life would not be so good because you can't completely trust your instincts. You can't trust them in the sexual, in sexual desires. You can't trust them in food. And you can't fully trust your senses when it comes to God. They must be restructured. And so God is father, but he's also son. Well, how does that work? Well, the eternal love that the father has for the son is so real that the love between them is also, in fact, a person, and that love is known as God, the Holy Spirit. And so God is one, but he's two, but he's three. God is three and one, one in essence, three in persons. The Bible does not teach what's known as tritheism. That's the belief that there are three gods who all work together. And it doesn't teach what's known as modalism. That's the belief that God reveals himself in three different forms or three different modes. The Bible teaches the mystery of what theologians call Trinitarianism. Trinitarianism, let me try to outline a little bit. One theologian said it like this. He said, there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons equal in divine essence and glory. The Father has from all eternity begotten the Son, meaning that the Father has known himself from all eternity with such fullness that the self he knows is fully God. God, the only begotten Son, and the Father and the Son from all eternity, for there are no beginnings with the eternal God, had loved each other, delighted in each other with such a fullness that this infinite delight carries all the deity and stands forth as a third person, God, the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm glad we figured that out. Well, that's a little confusing, right? The implications behind this idea of a God who is three and one are great, but one implication that's worthy of noting today is that the revelation of the Trinity is actually an arrow pointing to the meaning of life, pointing to the meaning of life, because at the center of the universe, at the core of all things, there is not a lonely deity who invented humanity so that he could have company. At the center of the universe is a God who is already complete because he himself is relationship. And so if you want to understand life, you have to understand it in the context of relationship, that you are not, in fact, an autonomous, unique, solo individual, but that you were created connected, in need of connection, not just to others, but ultimately to God. And so who is God the Son? Colossians chapter 1, that's where we started, right? Colossians chapter one gives us a picture of God, the son. He's called the firstborn of all creation. And we hear that, right? And we immediately think, oh, 
okay, so God the Father created God the Son, right? Is that what that means? He's the firstborn of all creation. That's not what it means. Jesus, the God the Son, is uncreated, okay? He's uncreated. What that means is he's been with the Father for all eternity past. That's why in the same text, it says that all things were created by him. So he can't be the creator of all things if he is in fact created because then part of all things would not have been created by him. And so he was created, or he, he, he has created all things, but he was not himself created. That word firstborn doesn't mean first created. It means highest in rank. Now, that's a little strange for us, but it's used that way frequently in the Bible. In Psalm 89, for example, David is called the firstborn of the kings of Israel. But if you know your history, David was not the first king. So why would God call David the firstborn of the king of Israel, except that he means that David was the highest in rank of all the kings? And so Jesus is described as the firstborn of all creation. And then it says, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Now, think about this with me for a moment. This is a little deep, right? In him, all things hold together. What does that mean? It means behind all of creation, there is an invisible glue. And that invisible glue is in fact, God himself holding everything together. And you might think, well, Justin, that's ridiculous. That's not true. That's not how things work. Well, the scientific community has actually struggled with this phenomenon for generations. Because as we've understood more and more about the world and about the atom and about the nucleus and about like electromagnetic energy, what we found is that positive charges repel against one another, right? And so that's the basic law of magnetism. But when you get into a nucleus of an atom, what you have is positively charged protons that should repel against one another, but instead stay close to one another, which doesn't make any sense scientifically because they should be pushing apart. And yet at the very smallest building block of all things, we find the laws of science being broken and positive protons staying within the nucleus of the atom. And it's a good thing they do, by the way, because if they didn't, everything in the world would explode, right? And so why do the positively charged protons all stay together? Scientists have been asking that question for years. And the answer that we've come to is, I'm not really sure. But we gave it a name. You can Google it. What's it called? this power that holds all things together. Scientists call it the strong force. That's what they call it. Legit, that's the actual name they came up with. I was like, man, we could have come up with something a little more unique than that. The strong force is what they call it. The Bible calls it God. God. He's holding the chair together that you're sitting on. He's holding the building together that we're in. He's holding the organs in your body together. All things hold together. Do you notice how ridiculous our individualism begins to look when we understand that God is holding every atom of our body together. I want to do what I want to do. And he's like, are you sure? Because if I take my hand off, it's not, going to, it's not going to go so well for you. All things are held together by him. And it says we are created by him and for him. So the purpose of my life can only be understood in reference to him. And so God is father. Remember, we're trying to understand God. He's not quite who you thought he was. God is father and God is also son the begotten son, not created, the uncreated one. And the love between father and son is also a person. That's God, the spirit. And so God is father, God is son, God is spirit, one in essence, three in persons. But there's something that causes tension in that second commandment that says you'll make no image of God. Because if I make an image of God in my mind, it's gonna distort the reality of who he is. But if I have no image of God at all, there's a distance between me and God that can't be crossed. And so my heart longs to have an image. I feel disconnected. And this is the mystery of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. 
the Son is the image of the invisible God. This is incredible. The second person of the triune God took on flesh and blood. And so this Son became a human in a person. Theologians call this the hypostatic union, that the nature of God and the nature of man, both fully God and fully man, were housed in one physical frame and still are, and that is in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That he's not just a great prophet or even a demigod or even a, 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 a mini-god or a wise person, that he is in fact the second person of the Trinity descended into humanity and became the second piece of our foundation for understanding God. You guys can come on out. And that second piece of our foundation, that second pillar is that, verse 19, for God was pleased to have the fullness dwell in him. And so there's a human being, think about this, who had fully God within him, that he was both fully man and fully God. Now, allow your mind to just linger on this idea for a second, that Jesus of Nazareth, who is the second person of the triune God, was tempted to sin and never did, that he experienced all the feelings that you experience, that he was in every way fully human. Think about this for a second. He got tired. He got bug bites. He had dandruff, possibly, right? He got hungry. He had friends betray him. Now, let me just ask you something. You don't have to answer out loud. I just want you to think about it. Do you believe this? Because this is pretty, this this is crazy. It's pretty pretty wild. Do I believe? Do I, have I really even thought about it? Have I really given it? deep consideration. Allow your mind to just linger on this for a moment. Do you believe that the God of all creation is in fact three in one? He is triune and that the second person of the Trinity descended into humanity, was born of a virgin and lived a blameless and perfect life in the person of Jesus of Nazareth? Do you believe that that's actually true or is it just some fairy tale? Is it just some idea that somebody came up with along the way? Because the more you learn about Jesus, the less he looks like the God you expect. See, as you learn about Jesus, you realize that he was born into poverty. Now, what kind of God would be born into poverty? And he lived most of his life in obscurity for 30 years out of his 33. We don't even know much about what he was doing. And so why would God just live a normal blue-collar job working as a carpenter? He never traveled more than 200 miles from his house where he was born. He never amassed any great wealth. He never held a political office. He never graduated from a prestigious university. And by age 33, he was dead. And so it seems that on the outside, this man should be an insignificant blip in the great sea of humanity. And yet here we are 2,000 years after he died and we're all still talking about him, more people worshiping him than any other human in the history of humanity. People singing to him and dancing to him, creating art about him, writing songs about him. This one man has changed human history more than anyone else ever has. Who is he? Think about it. That's crazy. What do you really believe? What do you really believe? Have you really settled this? Have you thought it through? Have you flushed it out? Do you really believe that God became flesh? Has that conviction gone deep into the understanding of the world that you live from? And if you don't believe that he was the son of God, then you've got some thinking to do too. 
If you're here and you're like, I'm a skeptic, I don't know. I'm not sure that I believe this story of God. Well, what will you do with Jesus? Because there's over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament that he's fulfilled specifically. The the prophecies of a Jewish Messiah that would come and save the world, but the prophecies go back even into a story that there was an old man many, 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 many years ago that God met and spoke to named Abraham, told him he'd be the father of a great nation, but Abraham had no children. And so Abraham had a miracle child in his old, old age with his barren wife, and that child grew into a family, and that family grew into a nation, and that nation brought forth a savior. Jesus was not just any man, he was a Jewish man. And that miracle of these people, the Jewish people, still today manifests and testifies to a God who intervened in human history. You remember Mark Twain, listen to what he said. He said, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with the sound of their splendor, and faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed, made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other people have sprung up, held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now, or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal, but the Jew, all forces pass, but he remains. King Louis XIV, the king of France, asked Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician many years ago, he said, give me proof of the supernatural, Pascal. And Pascal said, well, that's simple, your majesty, the Jews. The Jews are proof of the supernatural. How could a people group survive so many years? How could they thrive in so many challenging situations except that God preserved a people as evidence of his promise? That Jesus, the Jewish man who claimed to be God, changed history. And this is important because we have to decide deep in our bones, do I really believe that this man was the second person of the triune God? Is that foundational and fundamental in my life? Because that conviction will change everything about how I live if it's applied. Is that really true? And when you look at the life of Jesus, it's hard to explain his life any other way. History has been so radically impacted by the life of Jesus that to take him out of history is to completely lose the world we currently know. Think of things like, Hospitals, where did they come from? Followers of Jesus, following the teachings of Jesus. How about orphanages? Same thing. How about literacy for all people? How about education for women or human rights or just government? These are not ideas that just evolved in culture. They're ideas that came straight out of the teachings of Jesus. Did you ever wonder why in America we call our politicians public servants? Now we might argue as to whether or not they are, right? But public servants, that's a pretty Interesting name, that didn't come from Rome or from Greece or from Babylon. The idea of a public servant came from one man who claimed to be God and in his godness washed the feet of his disciples. And he redefined leadership forever. One Yale historian put it like this. He said, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth, look at this, has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries if it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? The answer is not much. So if you're here today and you're not convinced that he's fully God, then let me just ask you then, who is he? Who is he? Is this all one great big misunderstanding, one great convoluted concept? Is it possible that our hospitals and our orphanages and all these other things came out of a mistake about a man? Who is he? fulfilling over 300 prophecies, preserved through the Jewish people against all odds? Who is he? 
And if he is God, if he is the second person of the triune God manifest in flesh, then why did he come? Why would God, who created the cosmos, become man? The answer is found in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Look at this. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. What do you believe? Look at this. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Look, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now, somebody say, but now. But now, something's changed. He's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. See, God the Son came on a mission. He came to become the most important bridge in the world. And so if pillar one is that God's not quite who you thought he was and that you need to renew your understanding of God based on the revelation that God has provided for us and that God became man, that he lived as a human being with flesh and blood on this earth for 33 years, these two pillars, what you recognize is between God and man, there is still a great divide, right? There's a great divide. And so I could try to jump it. I don't know if you wanna have me try. Feels a little ambitious. I could try to jump it. I don't think I'd make it without some bruises. You know, I'm not sure I could land that. I could try to swim it. I could try to fly it. I could try to do a lot of things to get to God. But there's this separation between God and man that is obvious for all who explore it. The Bible tells us that something is wrong and that something that's wrong is in you. It's that addiction you can't break. It's that lust you can't walk away from. It's that need for approval. It's that fear. It's that anxiety. It's that compulsion. It's that need for control. Paul sums it up with one word in this text. He says, you're alienated. You're alienated. Just think about your relationships. I'm not trying to get in your business. Just think about your relationships. If you explore the last five years of your relationships, I can guarantee you, you'll find one common factor, alienation. That issue with your boss. I don't know why they treat me that way. I don't know why they say those things about me. I don't know why they always pick me out as the person to pick on. What is up with that? Alienation. That alienation with your spouse, with your ex. You know, we've gone to counseling. We've tried to talk it through. I try to understand her. She tries to understand me. We've tried to figure it out, but it's just not working. That alienation between you and your son, that alienation between you and your dad, that alienation between you and your neighbor, alienation. Every single one of us feels it in our relationships, but we don't just feel it in our relationships. We also feel it in us because you're not sure who you are. You're not sure why you're valuable. You're not sure why your life matters. And there's something inside of you that feels incomplete. Maybe you've looked in the mirror and just asked yourself, what's wrong with me? Why do I struggle with those fears? Why do I struggle with that depression? Why do I struggle with that sense of meaninglessness? Why am I so bored all the time? What's wrong with me? But underneath that alienation internally and that alienation relationally, there's a greater alienation. And that's what the scripture's getting at. And it's the alienation between you and God. That's why Isaiah says in Isaiah 59, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen. And so sin separates us from God, that pride, that lust, that insecurity. And you might be here today and you know exactly what I'm talking about because you know the hopelessness that comes when you've tried to change and you can't. 
the hopelessness that comes when you've tried to be humble, but you still end up being proud. When you've tried to walk away, but you keep walking back. That hopelessness that comes to say, is there any way to fix this? Is there any way to change this? And that's where God interrupts the story of humanity with those two little words in verse 22. But now, but now, but now something has changed. But now, and this is where we fundamentally begin to misunderstand the gospel. And I want to try to clear it up for us today because it's absolutely foundational to our faith. But now something's changed. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's news to you. It's news to us. Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Did you hear? It's news. Did he call you and ask what you thought? Probably not. Maybe he did. I don't know. Probably not. He didn't call me. He bought Twitter, he's buying Twitter, he's doing that, that's news. It's something that's happened. It's not something that you made happen, it's something that happened to us. It happened to us all, that's the essence of news. News is not something that you make happen, like religion. News is something that happens to you, like the gospel. And so news tells us that something has happened. Do you know what the gospel means? The gospel is not a style of music. The gospel means good news. Our entire faith is built on the concept that God intervened and he did something, but you must respond to the news. You have to respond to what he has already done. I remember years ago learning the story of Japanese commander Hiro Unada. Such a fascinating story. He was stationed in the Philippines during World War II. The world war ended in 1945. He was fighting for the Japanese and news got to him that the war was over, but he didn't believe. He said, no, 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 we haven't surrendered. I'm staying in the jungle. And so they sent him all different kinds of letters. They visited him with former generals, all these different things to try to connect, convince Commander Hiro Unada that the war was over and he would not surrender. He didn't believe them. He continued to fight World War II after it had ended for 29 years. 29 years of his life he spent in the jungles of the Philippines fighting a war that was over because he did not believe the news. See, the gospel is news, news that God has broken into human history and he's done something. He came as a man so that he could represent you before God. Hear this again, hear it for the first time, hear it for the 10,000th time. It's the medicine your soul needs most, that God came and became a man, but he lived as a perfect man, unlike you and me. And so never proud, never lustful, never greedy, tempted in every way, yet without sin. He lived as a perfect man so that he could represent you before God. And then he died as a substitute on the cross. And in the shedding of his blood, he made a great exchange. God, who was outside of time, who saw your life before you were born, every moment of sin in your heart, in your actions, and in your mind, he collected before you ever came into existence. And he deposited the debt of your sin in the heart of his son so that when Jesus hung on the cross, he could become your representative before God and pay your debt and an exchange could take place where the sinfulness of your life could be put on him and the righteousness of his life could be imputed to you. That's why Paul says, but now God presents you holy, without blemish, free from accusation. Hold on a second. Think about these words. Because when you believe them, they'll change everything about your life. Holy. Now, it doesn't say that you've acted holy. It says that you are holy. 
free from accusation, it means God will never accuse you of anything that would ever separate you from him ever again. You've been imputed with righteousness from Christ. Friends, if this is not good news, then I don't know what good news is. It's been done. Jesus Christ has made a bridge. Come on out, guys, with my bridge. He's made a bridge. Now, I just want you to think about this for a second. What is a bridge? What is a bridge? We take it for granted because we all drive over bridges all the time. What is a bridge? A bridge is a road where a road should not be. That's what a bridge is. I mean, think about it. There's a big river. I got land here. I got land there. I want to get over there. I'm going to make a bridge. Well, there really shouldn't be, there shouldn't be a bridge. There shouldn't be a road, but we make one. There's a road where a road should not be. A bridge is an equation. It's an equation of risk versus reward. Somebody walked up to the edge and said, you know, I'd like to get over there. I wonder what it would cost for me to get over there. I wonder what it would cost for me to bridge the divide. And they calculated it, thought about it, and said it's worth it. And so God looked across the chasm to human beings whom he created, who were in rebellion, separated from him, darkened in their understanding, with blinded eyes, don't even know who we are. And he saw the gap and he calculated the cost. And he said, it's worth it. He said, you are worth it. Don't you see how this becomes the foundation of identity? The foundation of value? Why we value human life at all? Because there's a God who said you're worth it. And then he died as our substitute, exchanged his life for ours so that we could enter into Christ. And now in Christ, the bridge could go both ways and we could have access to him. So what's the bridge? What's the bridge? This got me this week as I meditated on this truth of the gospel, verse 22, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. And so what's the bridge that connects me to God? It's the God who became man and the man who laid down. And in laying down, the one who was God connected the people separated from him through his physical body of death. And in laying down his body, he enabled you and I to walk over it to connect you to God. But here's the thing that really blew my mind as I meditated on this today, throughout this week, is that if Christ truly did lay down his body to become a bridge, and I can now access God and be at peace with God and experience the love of God and have the position of Jesus before God as blameless, as holy, as righteous, if all that is true, what is the foundation of our relationship? And if you look, you'll notice that the foundation of our relationship is not me that it's not built on my good deeds. It's not built on my church attendance. It's not built on the money I sacrifice. It's not built on any of those things. In other words, I don't work for acceptance in my relationship with God. 
I work from acceptance that's been given me freely in Christ because the foundation of our relationship on both sides is him. That's what the Bible means when it talks about grace. Grace means 100% the work of God, 0% the work of man. Grace means you can't earn it, you don't deserve it. Grace means you can't do enough good deeds to be qualified for it. Grace means that it's free to you and it is absolutely yours through what he has done. That's why it's called good news. And the result of that good news is peace. The Hebrews call it shalom. Shalom, it means nothing missing, nothing lacking. It means being made whole. But there's something that you must do if you're to experience peace with God. And it's right there in the text. But now, verse 22, he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, even though you didn't act it, in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel convictions. You must believe this. You must believe it. It's got to go from the superstructure of your life down into the substructure, down into the pillars, down into the piers. It needs to go deep into your foundation about who God is, about who man is in God, and about how the connection has been restored. And when this truth goes deep and you believe it, what you discover is that this truth gives you access to God, but not just peace with God, as if that wasn't enough. This truth gives you access to yourself, that you find your identity when you come into Christ, and not just yourself, but others, that you find family and relationship when you come into Christ. It's why Paul said in Ephesians 1, look, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Purpose, hope, direction, all come through Christ. Colossians 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Last year, Vox Church built a new central office. And when the construction was done, Lisa, who runs our office, handed me a fob. And she said, hey, this is yours. And I said, oh, cool. Beep, beep. Oh, it opens the door. That's neat. I like that. Thank you. I don't need a key. No, you just need the fob. I said, hey, which door does this open? And she said, oh, it opens every door. I said, this opens every door? She said, yeah, every door. Every door that has a fob, this one will open. Beep, beep. So now I can go to every door on any direction. Beep, beep. I can open it. I felt pretty special until I found out pretty much everybody on staff had one of those. But, but I thought it was really cool because it doesn't matter which door, the one fob opens every door. What if life had a fob? What if there was one fob that opened every door? What if Jesus Christ was the fob that opened every door in your life? What if the root of your fear problem is a distorted view of who God is? What if the root of your anxiety, the root of your need for control, is a distorted view of who God is? That if you could see Jesus as Jesus truly is, if you could see God as Jesus is declaring that he is, that that fear would dissolve because it would open the door to peace. That worry would dissolve because it would open the door to hope. 
that need for control would dissolve because you'd see a God who's strong enough and trustworthy. See, the solution to overcoming every one of our deepest problems, you feel like, oh, Justin, this is an overstatement. No, it's an understatement. The solution to overcoming every one of our deepest problems is to introduce Jesus to the problem, to reshape your imperfect view of God with the image of his son and to believe that he is all that he said he is. And when you do, the gospel begins to go to work in your life and something supernatural happens. You as a man, you as a woman enter into Christ and by believing who he is, what he's done, how he loves you, how he sees you, the value he's put on you, the precious person you are to him, the call that he has for your life, the purpose that he has for your life, you as a follower of Christ enter into Christ and when you enter into Christ, you operate from the position of Christ. And when you operate from the position of Christ, you experience the access of Christ. And as you experience the access of Christ, you develop a relationship with God through the merits of Jesus Christ. And this is life. And his life was the light of men. If you will fill your mind with the reality of Jesus, his life comes into your life. If you will fill your mind, I want you to just meditate on that thought, with the reality of Jesus, his life comes into your life. His peace becomes your peace. His strength becomes your strength. His love becomes your love because his connection to the Father is your connection to the Father. (laughs) Could it be that all of our lingering sins, you might have some lingering sins. Could it be that all of our lingering sins can be conquered through a right understanding of God? Could it be that understanding God rightly in Christ is the fob that opens the door to freedom from that addiction, freedom from that insecurity, freedom from that anxiety, freedom from that fear? Could it be that seeing him rightly enables us to see everything rightly? I heard a story recently about a man who was cheating on his wife. Every weekend, she would go away to see her mom, and every weekend, he would invite over his mistress. but there was something that he had to do before his mistress arrived at the house. He had to take down every picture of his wife. He had to take down every picture on his wife because he couldn't cheat on her and see her smiling, loving face looking back at him. And there's somebody here who's been unfaithful to the Lord, unfaithful to God with many mistresses. Maybe your mistress is your lying. Maybe your mistress is your job. Maybe your mistress is some hidden sin, but your heart has been unfaithful to the Lord. But if you would just keep his picture up in your mind, if you wouldn't put it away, if you would just lock eyes with Jesus and see his love and see his smile and see his open arms that when that mistress knocked on your door, 
you would glance at him and tell her, you're not welcome here anymore. I don't need to betray my Lord anymore because I see how he truly sees me and I long to remain faithful to him. What if the power to say goodbye to the sins that entangle us is actually found in a right view of a God who loves you this much? So here's my dream, church. My dream is that we would be a people who build our life on the gospel. That the gospel would be the centerpiece of our community. The centerpiece of our lives. And I want to invite you into that kind of life. Into that kind of community. Would you stand with me today? Do something with me. Bow your head and close your eyes. I want to ask you a question. Are you right with God? Maybe you're trying to be a really good person. Friend, your righteous acts will only lead to either self-righteousness or self-reproach. You'll either convince yourself that you're such a good guy, which is pride, or always feel like you don't measure up, which is shame. Neither way will get you to God. Some of us try to make our own way, create a God in our image, cut and paste, pick and choose, don't submit to the revelation of God revealed to us in history through God's word. If you do that, your life will be empty because you've created a God in your own image and worshiping yourself is hollow in the end. What you need is a picture of God that is bigger than you, that can heal the deepest wounds and restore the broken places in your heart. If you are here and you're not at peace with God, I want to invite you right now to make peace. <laughs> he is far more willing than you've imagined. You don't have to memorize this. You don't have to prove that. You just have to come as you are, humble and surrendered. Let God be who he really is, which is the king of all things, including you. And believe what he's revealed, that Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, was made flesh, fulfilled every prophecy, lived a perfect blameless life, died a substitutionary death and exchanged his life for yours on the cross, rising from the dead that you may have eternal life in him. Trust him. Right now, trust him. With your eyes closed and your heart open, I wanna ask you, are you right with God? Are you at peace with God? And if you're not, I wanna invite you to a point of decision. A point of decision where you say, you know what, I need to turn to God. I need to invite him into my life. I need to invite him into my heart. Maybe you grew up in church, you grew up in religion, but you're not right with God. Or maybe this is all new to you and he's knocking on the door of your heart right now. Would you open the door and let him in? He is calling you. What do you really have to lose? 
I want to invite you right now to make that choice. And if you're here and you're saying, you know, I'm far from God and I need peace with him and I need to place my faith in Christ right now, I want to invite you to raise your hand all across this room. God bless you. Go ahead, raise your hand. God bless you. 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 Anybody else? God bless you. That's me. You may put your hands down. God bless you. Anybody else? Say, that's me. That's me. That's me. Today, I got to do this. Today, I got to put my faith in Christ. I need to open my life to him. I'm going to lead you in a prayer of confession, and I want to invite you to whisper this prayer as a step of faith to God. Say, Jesus, I surrender. I believe you're the son of God. Today, I come home to you. Forgive my sin. I trust you that you died and rose again and that you love me. I receive forgiveness and peace. Now let me just pray for you, Father, for every one of my brothers and sisters who just extended their faith. I pray that the peace of God would surround them right now. I pray that you'd come upon them that your power and your assurance would come upon them even right now. In Jesus' name. I want to pray for our whole church. I want to pray that we would be a church that builds our lives on the revelation of Christ, that he becomes the foundation of our lives. So I want to pray that over you and over me, and then I want to sing that back to God. And if you've wandered from that foundation, if you've forgotten his kindness, if you haven't dug those foundations deep down into who you are, even as we sing, invite God to do a deeper work in you. So Lord Jesus, we come standing today on holy ground. And I pray that you would build a church on the foundation of Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97,000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.